Francis Lodermilk sat in the long-abandoned stone theater, looking not at the stage where Roman actors had once declaimed, but out at the desiccated Algerian desert beyond. Just how, he wondered, had a land of such storied richness become the barren landscape he saw before him? The year was 1938, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture had sent Lodermilk, a soil scientist, on a tour of Europe and the old provinces of the Roman Empire to see what could be learned about the degradation of agricultural land, a problem the U.S. was then grappling with in the form of the Dust Bowl. Lodermilk was in the ruined city of Timgad, founded by the Emperor Trajan around the year 100 AD, when the Roman Empire seemed invincible and everlasting. At its peak, the city housed more than 25,000 residents, many of them legionary veterans who Trajan had rewarded with land. Ruined as it was, Lodermilk found Timgad impressive. It had a straight grid of streets radiating out from the central forum. Stone, homes, and monuments were still visible above the desert sand. There was a large public library that once held more than 3,000 scrolls, a theater which could seat 3,500 people, and ample public bathrooms with marble toilets once flushed by continuously running water. Water had been so freely available that the people operated four large bathhouses, where residents cooled off after their workday. Beyond the city, many acres of productive farms had easily fed the population, with large surpluses available for export. But all Lodermilk could see was a land stripped to the bone, mostly shorn of good topsoil. At the edge of the city, he found the remains of giant olive presses, but it had been a long time since anyone had grown olives in the area. Lodermilk continued his wanderings around North Africa, stopping to see long-abandoned cities and farms and dried-up rivers. Many of his colleagues proposed these old imperial lands had begun to receive less rain as part of a climactic shift sometime after the Arabs had conquered them. This, they said, is what destroyed the farming potential of the land. Lodermilk had his doubts. In his wanderings, he discovered living olive trees, thought to be 1,500 years old, confirming that the drying climate couldn't have been the only thing responsible for the collapse of North African agriculture. In these groves, shored up by ancient Roman terraces, the soil remained deep and rich. The rain was sufficient to keep the old trees producing olives. No, something else was going on here, and Lodermilk was determined to find out what. My name is Andrew Perlot. Welcome to The Turning Wheel, a podcast about the pivot points of human history and the fascinating questions that underlie our civilization. This is episode 12 of my series on the twilight years of the Pax Romana, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. Up until now, this series has followed an emperor who ruled well in trying circumstances, and another who ruled poorly in easy circumstances. Marcus Aurelius and his son Commodus were fascinating, contrasting characters worth studying. Both ruled as the Roman Empire began its plunge from a high watermark of population, economic prosperity, and cultural achievement towards its eventual dissolution and conquest by outside powers. But as we have seen, nothing about either man's life seemed to presage any such fall. Why should the Romans who came after them have had a harder time than those who'd come before? If anything, the years directly after Commodus's reign seemed to be ones of recovery and improvement, not further decline. 
This series arose from my unease with virtually all the popular explanations of the fall of the Roman Empire, a topic that's interested me since I was a teenager. Certainly, none of the major ones suggested when I was growing up seemed particularly convincing. It just seemed to me that purported causes of the fall seemed less problematic than many of the challenges Rome had faced in its early centuries, as it gradually expanded across first Italy and then the entire Mediterranean. But to an extent, science has come to the rescue, and we now know the ancient historians were almost completely silent on the powerful forces that slowly and subtly strangled the empire of its vitality. We know a few particularly observant Romans did have an inkling that things were changing on them, but the Romans by and large seemed to have been unaware of exactly why their empire was falling apart around them. They only saw the end result of their weakness, which is also what most historians have focused on. Poorly performing armies, inflation, and the loss of territory were serious blows, but they were often more of an obvious visible symptom rather than the underlying cause of decline. So in this final episode of the series, we're going to step back from the human narrative and take a bird's eye view of the fall of the Roman Empire to see if we can tease out what the traditional narrative passed over. There were actually two forces that played into this background ebb, which we'll be examining today. The first was caused by the vagaries of nature, and the second by the ignorance of man. Before we get into the episode, though, I just want to remind you that the next episode will be a Q&A for this series. If you have any questions related to what we've talked about so far, you can send them to andrewperlot at gmail.com. That's P-E-R-L-O-T. Episode 12. Why the Romans Didn't Notice Their Own Decline. Part 1. When Nature Turned Against Rome. In his book, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, the British historian Edward Gibbon attempted to explain, from his vantage point in 1776 AD, why the Roman Empire came to an end. He said, quote, The decline of Rome was the natural and inevitable effect of immoderate greatness. Prosperity ripened the principle of decay. The causes of destruction multiplied with the extent of conquest, and as soon as time or accident had removed the artificial supports, the stupendous fabric yielded to the pressure of its own weight, unquote. Maybe that's it. Or maybe it's one of the 210 other hypotheses attempting to explain why the Roman Empire came crashing down that one scholar has documented. Some say taxes were too low, others that they were too high. Some blame too much expansion, while others insist that the issue was that the state stopped its incessant conquest. Some blame Christianity or the loss of old-school Roman virtue and grit. Many blame bad emperors, mismanaged battles, and the civil wars that sapped the vitality of the state. Libertarians like to point to price controls and limitations placed on markets as the cause, while others think a little bit of Keynesian stimulus would have done the empire some good. Most admit that this is a complicated subject and it was really a host of factors that finally killed off the empire. The problem with most of these theories is that they're built on one glaring assumption, that the environment and the forces it channels are more or less stable, innocuous, and unimportant backdrops across which the truly important human actions play out. 
But modern science has pulled the rug out from under these assumptions, and instead has demonstrated that the Earth's wild oscillations gave humanity an incredibly bumpy ride, even just since we started building civilizations around 10,000 years ago. The problem is that few realized it at the time, because the transformation happened slowly over such a long period of time, and often not enough climactic data was being collected and tracked to notice the shifts. Due to some really impressive research, we now know when Roman civilization was getting less sunlight due to solar oscillations and exploding volcanoes throwing sediment into the atmosphere. We know when droughts lasting years devastated the empire's agricultural output. We know when the Nile went from providing a predictable annual sediment-filled flood that grew reasonably predictable amounts of wheat to one year in four having little to no flood, which resulted in empire-wide famines. Just as importantly, historians and archaeologists have put together pretty comprehensive analyses of what sort of diseases struck Rome and really wreaked havoc. The picture is this. From 200 BC to 150 AD, the Romans experienced what is called the Roman Warm Period, or Roman Climate Optimum. The exact dates are disputed, but there is agreement that the Mediterranean basin was warm, wet, and stable. Agricultural output was tremendous, the population grew, and there weren't any major disease outbreaks that reached the epidemic level. This was the period in which Rome expanded at an unbelievable pace, quickly conquering the entire Mediterranean basin and significant chunks of Europe. As these benign years faded away, the Roman transition period kicked in. From 150 to 450 AD, cooler temperatures became the norm, less sunlight was hitting the earth, and droughts were more common. Now, this period wasn't all bad. There were several stretches lasting a decade or more when the climate was pretty cooperative, but the cooler temperatures were associated with several devastating disease outbreaks, and all in all, people's lives were harder than they'd been a few hundred years prior. The transitional period coincides with the so-called crisis of the 3rd century, uh, 235 to 284 AD is usually what we consider that period to be, when the empire's economy completely collapsed, its currency became worthless, barbarians stormed through the borders, droughts and famines starved millions, and dozens of petty emperors squabbled to come out on top. It was a bad time to be a Roman. During the good times of the climate optimum, Rome built out crowded cities where humans and animals intermixed in the most effervescent jumble of civilization up to that point. Each of these civilized nodes was connected through a vast network of sea trade routes and sturdy roads, allowing unprecedented mobility for humans or whatever pathogens they might be carrying. This buildup of humanity in ever-growing clusters was a positive while times were good, but soon the other shoe was going to drop. All those people needed a continuous supply of food from somewhere to avoid starvation, and their tight quarters and less-than-adequate hygiene standards made them ripe targets for pathogens. As the world started to shift into the transition period, there's some evidence that well-read Romans recognized that the world was not as abundant and cooperative as it had once been. The Romans were good at record-keeping, and in some cases had agricultural yield data going back generations. 
Saint Cyprian, the Bishop of Carthage, wrote in the middle of the third century, quote, The world has grown old and does not stand in the vigor whereby it once stood, nor do the strength and liveliness that once availed it still abide. In winter there is not such an abundance of rains to nourish the seeds. The summer sun burns less bright over the fields of grain. The temperature of spring is no longer for rejoicing, and the ripening fruit does not hang from autumn trees. He goes on to say, The falling rays of the setting sun are not so bright or brilliantly fiery. The fountain that once flowed with abundant springs, now forsaken by old age, scarcely yields a drop. During this period, food security became a major issue for the Romans. Changes in rain patterns in Africa led the Nile to flood less regularly, severely lowering grain harvests in Egypt. Without that grain, the food buffer the Romans had against the declining agricultural outputs elsewhere in their empire, which we'll be discussing in part two, vanished, leading to food insecurity. Marcus Aurelius, the focus of most of this series, reigned at the beginning of the Roman transition period, and he was the first to have to cope with this new crop of disease epidemics that were worse than any that had really come before. So I think it would kind of help to put the climate issue into perspective if we kind of talk about it in terms of casualties. So let's put the effects of the Antonine Plague, which we talked about in episode 5, into a wider context. So during the Republican period, Rome fought two of the hardest wars it would ever wage against its arch-rival, Carthage. Carthage. It managed to win both of the first and second of these so-called Punic Wars through brutal, dogged, bloody persistence. And Rome barely held on. Its population and economy were exhausted by the end of those conflicts. But what was the cost of those wars? Most modern historians think the casualty figures given by ancient historians are often inflated, but let's take them at face value for the sake of making an argument. We're told Rome lost 400,000 citizens and allies during the First Punic War, and another 300,000 in the Second. So the worst case scenario is 800,000 casualties during the two of the worst wars that Rome ever fought combined. Compare that to the Antonine Plague Marcus had to deal with. Most historians think that at least 7 to 8 million people died, with many projecting a far higher toll. In other words, in terms of body count and the economic and societal destruction that went hand in hand with it, the worst devastation that man could manage caused only a tiny fraction of the damage that occurred with a single disease epidemic. Yes, the empire was far larger by Marcus's day, but the impact of such a loss still outstripped any war the empire ever fought. Cyprian not only chronicled his impressions of a less bountiful world, but he's also the best source we have for what came next, the eponymous Plague of Cyprian. There's a widespread disagreement about what the disease actually was, but many think it was an influenza pandemic, or perhaps something closely related to the Ebola virus. Whatever it was, its effects were devastating. A bishop living in Alexandria, Egypt, the empire's second city, wrote in a letter to a fellow bishop describing the bodies piling up in the streets and rotting, filling the air with a horrible stench that even the sea breeze couldn't carry off. 
He writes, quote, This immense city no longer contains as big a number of inhabitants, from infant children to those of extreme age, as it used to support of those described as hale old men. As for those from 40 to 70, they were then so much more numerous that their total is not reached now, though we have counted and registered as entitled to the public food ration all from 14 to 80, and those who look the youngest are now reckoned as equal in age to the oldest men of an earlier generation. The loss equaled 62% of the inhabitants of Alexandria, or a decline from around 500,000 to 190,000. Now, some of these may have simply fled the city to escape the disease, but either way, the, de the depopulation of the empire's major cities must have caused a massive problem. The epidemic coincided with the crisis of the 3rd century I mentioned before. The end result was an empire split into three parts, each greatly diminished and economically fragmented. Eventually, the empire would reunify, but would never again know the peace and prosperity it had achieved before during the Pax Romana. The large classical cities mostly gave way to smaller cities and towns huddled behind their walls, fearful of the barbarian incursions the emperors could no longer keep at bay. The trade network that had made the empire rich dwindled, and instead of exporting finished goods across the empire, most goods were produced and used locally. Eventually, the weakened western half of the empire, further starved by a great drought, fell to invading German tribes. The eastern half lived on, though, and after weathering the onslaught of Germans, Huns, and invasions from the Sasanian Persians, the empire regained its equilibrium by the 5th century. The recovery was due in no small part to a streak of more cooperative weather patterns and freedom from the disease epidemics that science has found evidence of. The weather warmed, and the glaciers that had been creeping down mountainsides for several hundred years began once more to recede, and the rains became more abundant. The empire didn't return to the halcyon days of the Roman climate optimum, but this was a respite. Under the energetic emperor Justinian, the Romans beat the Sasanians, recaptured North Africa and Italy, and even gained a toehold in Spain. The economy was on the rise, trade networks were opening up again, including links to Eastern Asia and Southern Africa via the Red Sea. And the population was growing again. For the first time in hundreds of years, beautiful grand public buildings like the Hagia Sophia were being built. But then, once again, the world turned against the Romans. The first sign that things were changing was the year 536 AD, also known as the Year Without Summer. A massive volcanic eruption blackened out the sun, and for more than a year it could be seen but hazily. It snowed in July that year. Another massive eruption blanketed the sky in 541. The 530s and 540s were the coldest decades in centuries, and Justinian had trouble feeding his people as agricultural yields plummeted. John of Ephesus tells us, quote, The sun darkened and stayed covered with darkness a year and a half, that is 18 months, although rays were visible around it for two or three hours a day. They were as if diseased, and the result was fruits that did not reach full ripeness. All the wine had the taste of reject grapes, unquote. This was the beginning of the late antique Little Ice Age that lasted through the 7th century, a period of coldness unlike anything the Romans had experienced before. 
possibly spurred on by a shift in weather. The empire was now visited by a plague that made those of the Antonine and Cyprian varieties look mild in comparison. Yersinia pestis is a pathogen that usually sticks to rats. It spreads via fleas, but on three separate occasions it's jumped to humans with horrible results. The first was during the Plague of Justinian that struck in 541. It broke the back of Justinian's Roman resurgence just as it was really getting going. It would surge through the empire on and off for two centuries before finally receding. Yersinia pestis struck again in the Middle Ages when it was known as the Black Death, and it most recently returned to China in the 1800s. It's estimated that the plague of Justinian killed 50 to 60% of the Roman Empire's population. Constantinople, the Eastern Empire's capital, with its population of about 500,000, lost between 250 and 300,000 people. Alexandria and Antioch, the only other large cities left in the empire, were almost emptied, both through the plague and people fleeing them. In prior epidemics, the less densely packed countryside seemed to have been less gravely affected, but that didn't seem to stop Yersinia pestis, and the rural areas were hit just as hard. Interestingly, though, ancient historians tell us that while the Romans and other settled peoples, including Rome's old enemy, the Sasanian Persians, were almost destroyed by the disease, the Turks, Arabs, and Moors living in drier, warmer climates were not affected in the slightest. Between 542 and 619 AD, the plague struck Constantinople on average every 15.4 years. After that, it struck twice in 128 years. Each time, it spread beyond the capital, affecting the rest of the empire to various extents. What this meant is that the empire's population got knocked down to a new low, and just when it was starting to recover, it got knocked down again. The late Roman Empire was filled with a decimated population living in the emptied-out glory of their once-prosperous cities. At the beginning of Marcus Aurelius' rule, the Roman Empire contained in the ballpark of 78 million souls. The Eastern Empire was down to 26 million in Justinian's day, but after Yersinia Pestis, there were only about 10 to 13 million Romans left. The Arabs, unaffected by the plague and realizing that the Romans and Sasanian Persians had been decimated and were barely holding on, they sprang into action. They faced the remnants of the last Persian and Roman armies in pitched battles, and they bested both. And that was it. If you read Roman history all the way from Rome's founding to this point, it seems impossible that the Romans would just give up and cede most of their empire. It's totally out of character. They'd sprung back from countless setbacks from a multitude of foes over more than a thousand years, but they gave up after a single battle? The plagues and famines had so drained Roman reserves that there was literally no more strength to call on, no more slack left in the system that could be used to fight on. There were no more men to recruit into field armies, and Heraclius, one of the greatest emperors the Romans ever saw, had no choice but to cede most of his territory to the, territory to the Arabs. The Arabs formed the Islamic Caliphate from the ruins of Roman and Persian territory, fighting all the way to the gates of Constantinople, where the city's famous impenetrable walls and easy sea access kept the city from falling. 
After several attempts to take the city, the Arabs put their energies into expansion into the rest of North Africa, Sicily, and elsewhere in Asia, and the Romans were left to govern just Anatolia and a bit of the Balkans, holding on, but just barely. The final outbreak of Yersinia Pestis was in the 740s, interestingly coinciding with the end of the antique Little Ice Age and the increasingly warmer temperatures of the High Middle Ages. With the end of the plague in the 740s and the warming temperatures improving agricultural output, the Roman rump state started to recover under the Macedonian dynasty, culminating with Basil II, who went on to reconquer vast tracts of land in the Balkans. A now politically fractured caliphate couldn't hold back the Roman soldiers that recaptured Syria, Armenia, and Cyprus. During this period, Roman armies marched all the way to Jerusalem, crushing any force that got in their way. The old Roman spirit wasn't dead. It had merely gone unseen beyond the Taurus Mountains for generations, since there hadn't been enough men to carry it outward. Now that the environment was being more cooperative and their population and agricultural production had begun to slowly recover, the Romans went back to being stereotypical Romans again in the military sense. They were still far from their peak. Most of their cities besides Constantinople were shells of their former selves, but you can see that things were on the upswing. In the end, the Turks, who had never endured the plague of Justinian, swept into Roman territory as well as the fractured caliphate and overwhelmed them. Eventually, they conquered both of these weakened states. Perhaps a man as energetic as Basil II might have fought them off, just as Marcus had managed to fend off the Germans after the Antonine Plague, but the vacillating rulers who followed Basil resulted ruling over a diminished people, floundered. And once again, there was no more slack in the system from which to draw. The Romans had been spread too thin by so many years of failed harvests and disease. They fought doggedly for several hundred more years, but eventually Constantinople fell. So why go over all this? Because when you start to see the connection between Rome's expansions and contractions, its defeats and victories, its triumphant emperors and the ones that were unworthy of their thrones, you start to see that it was far more than the decisions of men at play. Not even Justinian could continue his reconquest in the face of the plague and a mini-ice age that blocked out the sun and caused famines. Not even Heraclius, who once saved the empire from an almost complete victory by the Sasanian Persians, could hold back the Arabs with the exhausted remnants of his people. But when it comes to the transition period between the apex of Roman civilization that started in 165 and the Turkish sacking of Constantinople in 1453, people want to pin a lot of blame on Marcus and Commodus, or, you know, insert your favorite uh, punching bag emperor here, or often some combination of emperors who they have a poor view of. And it's easy to see the temptation. As Dio wrote, there seemed to be a clear transition from, quote, a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust, unquote, that was easily noticeable during this period. The Romans went from an endless series of wins to hard-fought victories that still led down the slippery slope of decline. No matter how hard they tried, at the end of every few generations, there were fewer Romans, less territory, and not enough tax revenue to go around. Hunger was only one bad harvest away. There was no buffer left. 
Marcus managed some impressive things in the midst of the Antonine Plague and was certainly a great emperor, but not even he could convince the climate to be more cooperative. Commodus was a horrible ruler, and the state was worse for his leadership, but he didn't do any lasting harm that subsequent emperors couldn't readily reverse. On the other hand, those subsequent emperors couldn't really do much about the things that were changing behind the scenes. A horrible civil war followed Commodus' assassination, but the victor was the competent Septimius Severus, who stabilized the empire. His dynasty, while far from perfect, kept the Roman state running. The population and the economy began to recover, well, until the next time nature struck. On close inspection of the historical record, human choice seems to loom large, but if we zoom out far enough, we start to see that those choices, while important, were blips on the radar compared to what was happening behind in the background. Ultimately, the Romans were undone more by disease epidemics and weather patterns than by wars, megalomaniacal leaders, and tax rates. During the earlier years of their rise, the Romans bounced back because they had reserves of strength built into their system. When their armies were defeated, they could recruit more men because there were plenty more in the countryside. The later Romans couldn't replace a lost army very easily because there just weren't that many citizens left. And to do anything, people need to eat, but when the sun fails to shine and the rains don't come, those people will starve. This is not to say that leadership doesn't make a difference or that things couldn't have been better with a different emperor. Good human leadership is always preferable, but not even a perfect leader can keep things going when half his population dies out, the rains repeatedly fail, the sun shines but dimly in the sky, and the fruit rots half-grown on the branches. What can any man do in those circumstances but try his best to hold on? The historian Kyle Harper, whose work heavily informed this episode, put it this way, quote, The Romans were far from helpless victims of environmental catastrophe. They harnessed the power of the environment. They reshaped the disease ecology of the empire with unintended consequences. They were resilient in the face of stress and strain, but we should not shy away from recognizing the power of nature. The physical and biological environment is an integral part of human life. There is really no separating human and natural factors in the story of Romans civilization, unquote. Now, of course, the Romans noticed the famines, droughts, and disease epidemics that were testing them. They knew things were bad, but they often lacked a context that went beyond their own lives. They didn't know how different their own climate was compared to those of their distant ancestors. As the climate was worsening on the Romans, wise planning and concerted action may have helped them stave off their decline, but as we shall see next, they kind of did the opposite. Part 2. Dirt. Chief Export of the Empire. Fifty years, just fifty years after Rome had spent the blood of 300,000 of its sons to bring Carthage to heel and end the Second Punic War, their old enemy was back. No, the Carthaginians hadn't birthed another Hannibal intent on reconquering Spain or Sicily. 
They had even met their promise to pay a massive war indemnity to Rome. But for Cato the Elder, that was an even bigger reason to be worried. By 153 BC, the humbled and much-reduced city of merchants on the shores of North Africa was recovering at a pace that Cato found alarming. As he stood in the Senate house enshrouded in his toga, he tossed a huge ripe fig onto the floor at the feet of his fellow senators, who sat arrayed before him on benches. I ask you, he said, when do you suppose this fruit was plucked from the tree? Several of his colleagues said that it appeared to be recently picked. Know then, was his reply, that this fig was plucked at Carthage but the day before yesterday. So near is the enemy to our walls. Cato had just returned from a diplomatic trip to Carthage. He'd found its merchant ships once again the undisputed masters of Mediterranean trade, their galleys loaded down with an expensive purple dye made from snails, all manner of spices, and precious metals gathered from as far away as the British Isles and the west coast of Africa. Although Carthage had lost most of its empire, its entrepreneurial spirit was unbroken, and its merchants sailed the known world looking for deals. But the thing that bothered him the most seemed to be the Carthaginian mastery of pomology, and more broadly, agriculture. He found their markets overflowing with dates, pears, pomegranates, nuts, and huge figs, like the one he carried back with him to cast on the floor of the Senate House. Cato had authored a book on agriculture and was probably the closest thing the Romans had to a farming expert, but he was wowed by the horticultural vitality of North Africa. In an age when agriculture made up most of the economy, being out-farmed was a serious threat, and Cato was concerned. Thereafter, he would end every otherwise unrelated speech to the Senate with the same droning refrain. Furthermore, it is my opinion that Carthage must be destroyed. After several years of his continuous warmongering, Rome did attack Carthage, destroyed the city, and seized those rich agricultural lands for itself. For generations, North Africa would be one of the breadbaskets of Rome, often supplying it with grain to keep its huge population fed. Soon, large cities with populations in the hundreds of thousands sprouted up in North Africa, fed by the continent's rich soil. But let's flash forward more than 2,000 years to the mid-1960s. A Cambridge University graduate named Claudio Vida Finzi crouched down near a Libyan wadi, or in a usually dry stream bed coming out of a mountainous valley. Shifting through soil deposited during what previous researchers had assumed was glacial times, he began pulling out broken pieces of Roman pottery, and he wondered, how had so much erosion taken place so recently? He started exploring ancient Roman dams, cisterns, and cities lying in ruins, and found evidence of for huge amount of soil erosion. That soil eventually got deposited in areas like the Wadi, clogging up streams and rivers, or got washed out to sea. He found hills and mountains that had once, in Roman times, been heavily forested, but subsequently had been totally cleared of trees. Their once ample soil was now barren rock. 
There were ancient Carthaginian and Roman farms sitting out in the middle of the desert, far away from any means of irrigation, which means that they'd at once gotten enough rain to produce a crop. Outside of Rome, Princeton University geologist Sheldon Judson was making similar observations around the same time. He saw how the foundation of a cistern built to hold water for a Roman villa around 150 AD stood exposed by as much as 51 inches of erosion since the structure was built, an average rate of more than an inch per century. It had once sat flush with the land, but now its stones protruded several feet above the soil line. Other sites around Rome had seen as much as four inches of erosion each century since the city's founding. Some of the evidence was far more obvious. Ostia, Rome's ancient seaport, is today two miles from the sea. The Tiber River, on which it's located, carried so much eroded soil from upland farms that a new coast was deposited beyond the city. Ravenna, another Roman port, also lost access to the sea, and the ruins of Sybaris in southern Italy were totally buried by deposited soil. When Rome was founded in 750 BC, Romulus divided the surrounding countryside into two-acre parcels, which a single family could easily manage. When the Republic was founded a few hundred years later, the average farm still only averaged two to five acres, which could provide enough to feed a family with a little surplus left over for trade. Central Italy was a rich and productive land, and its population grew, supplying soldiers for the Roman army and colonists to settle captured territory. Much of the flat valley bottoms of central Italy were given over to multi-story canopies of olives, grapes, grains, and other vegetables. Small animals like chickens ran through them, eating bugs and depositing manure. The understory smothered weeds and, along with a permanent root system which was never dug up, kept erosion in check. Modern science has showed us that these systems raise soil temperature and extend the growing season. It was a productive way of growing that served the early Romans well. This setup, known as cultura promiscua, was very labor-intensive, and while it fed everyone amply, it didn't necessarily provide a lot of cash crops for export. Eventually, a desire to raise grain and other exportable goods drove farmers to tear up many of these systems, and plowing with an ox became popular. This required less labor, but farmers needed roughly twice as much land to extract the same number of calories. The demand for land shot up, and Romans began expanding from the fertile valley bottoms to steep hillsides. They tore up the forests that traditionally covered them, and erosion became a major issue. Soil-choked rivers and streams turned some valley bottoms into waterlogged marshes. Gradually, often over the course of hundreds of years, lands that had once supported farms became good only for grazing due to the high levels of erosion. The countryside immediately surrounding Rome was partially emptied out since grazing supported fewer farmers than either monocrop systems of grain growing or the more stable cultura promiscuous system. By the first decade AD, the historian Livy wondered if the degraded, unproductive fields of central Italy could have ever really fed the vast armies Rome had sent into the field against the other Italian states and later the armies of Carthage. By this point, the farmers could barely feed themselves, much less the multitudes of Rome. Two centuries later, the emperor Pertinax offered a 
chunks of this degraded and abandoned farmland in central Italy, Italy to anyone who is willing to make a go at farming it, and even offered exemption from all taxes for 10 years as an inducement. Few took him up on the offer. There was so much abandoned land in Campania by 395 AD that it's estimated that it could have supported 75,000 farmers using the farming practices of the early republic. Land loss accelerated the shift away from small farms run by citizen farmers that had been going on since the 200s BC. Cheap slaves captured in foreign wars made it possible for wealthy absentee landlords to run profitable farms without the need to hire citizens. Their huge estates often grew cash crops rather than food for the local people, and the displaced fall small farmers flooded into Rome, where they survived largely because the grain dole was eventually instituted. The grain no longer came from Italy, though, but the provinces of the empire. First Sicily, then North Africa, and eventually Egypt. Each of these in turn eventually saw its agricultural output plummet after years of intense cultivation had decimated the soil. The exception was Egypt, which had the Nile flood to not only annually soak the desert with water, but also disperse rich sediment from upstream, renewing the denuded lands faster than they could be destroyed. Some Romans seemed aware of the destruction they were causing. In the first century AD, Pliny the Elder said that the large plantations farmed by slaves were responsible for most of the decline of agricultural output, since such setups rarely led to good land husbandry. He noted that the removal of trees, particularly from hillsides, led to the erosion that had trashed the farmlands of central Italy. He maintained that the continuation of such practices would ruin the empire. And he was somewhat correct. When Wherever the Romans went, they cultivated lands intensely, and we can often see the signs of the resulting soil erosion today. This was by no means a problem that only the Romans had to deal with. The Carthaginians Cato was so incensed over were the descendants of the Phoenicians of the Eastern Mediterranean. The Phoenicians' farmland had become so degraded that they needed to export Finnish goods in return for food from their colonies, like Carthage, just to survive. Both Plato and Aristotle wrote about soil erosion stripping Greece of its agricultural bounty. Modern studies have discovered exactly how it happened. A study of the Argolid near Arcadia found that soil loss happened in four distinct periods. The first trace of erosion can be seen when the first agriculturalists cut down the thickly forested woodlands to create farms around uh, 4500 to 3500 BC. By 2300 BC, the plow was introduced and hillsides were increasingly being cultivated, radically increasing erosion. There was breathing room during the Bronze Age collapse, when Greece entered a dark age and many farms were abandoned. But when classical Greek civilization took off in the 5th century BC, erosion returned, and after Rome's conquest of Greece, it intensified. By 200 AD, Tertullian, a North African Christian who wrote of how much damage agriculture was doing to the once rich farmland of Africa, wrote, quote, We overcrowd the world. The elements can hardly support us. Our wants increase and our demands are keener, while nature cannot bear us, unquote. A former U.S. congressman from Vermont, George Perkins Marsh was appointed U.S. Minister to the Ottoman Empire in 1848. 
Later, he became a U.S. ambassador to Italy. He often had little to do and traveled around the Alps, Egypt, and Palestine, noting that the degraded land he found was similar to what was happening in Vermont during his lifetime, where the state's ancient forests were being converted into wheat fields and pastures for livestock. He wrote, quote, "...territory larger than all Europe, the abundance of which sustained in bygone centuries a population scarcely inferior to that of the whole Christian world at the present day, has been entirely withdrawn from human use, or at best is thinly inhabited. There are parts of Asia Minor, of Northern Africa, of Greece, and even of Alpine Europe, where the operation of causes set in action by man has brought the face of the earth to a desolation almost as complete as that of the moon. And though within that brief span of time which we call the historical period, they are known to have been covered in luxuriant woods, verdant pastures, and fertile meadows." Unquote. I opened this episode with Francis Lodermilk touring North Africa. A few years later, after finishing up his tour of the old Roman domains, he wrote a book decrying the danger posed by agricultural erosion and offering solutions to stop it. His work would help slow down the dramatic loss of farmland that had been going on in the United States for much of its history. While in Israel after World War II, he gave a radio address suggesting that the Jews should adopt another commandment in addition to the ten Moses had left them. Quote, Thou shalt inherit the holy earth as a faithful steward, conserving its resources and productivity from generation to generation. Thou shalt safeguard thy fields from erosion, thy living waters from drying up, thy forests from desolation, and protect thy hills from overgrazing by thy herds, so that thy descendants shall have abundance forever. If any shall fail in this stewardship of the land, thy fruitful fields shall become sterile, stony ground and wasting gullies, and thy descendants shall decrease and live in poverty, or be destroyed from off the face of the earth." Unquote. That's pretty much what happened to the Romans. They didn't really listen to Lodermilk's <laughs> commandment, and they paid for it. Now, I want to be clear. Soil erosion did not cause the collapse of the Roman Empire. Famine, although uh, a very persistent problem, was not ultimately the thing that strangled the empire. But when the major cities of the empire could no longer feed themselves from their immediate countryside, there was no choice but to spend massive amounts of money importing grain from across the empire via a huge fleet of freighters. Rome at its height could afford this inefficiency, but as the strain of plagues, civil wars, invasions, and sometimes incompetent emperors took their toll, it became a huge logistical challenge that taxed the empire to its limits. Moreover, when your economy is built around agriculture and the majority of your people can't profitably farm because the land is so degraded, they become a huge liability. Roman plebeians crowded first Rome and then Constantinople, demanding the state support them with free grain. Other major cities also had doles of various kinds, but this was only part of the population, and most everyone else in the capital had to pay for expensive imported grain too. Had Italian farmland been preserved, much less grain would have been needed and a huge part of the treasury could have been used for other purposes. Another aspect of intense agriculture was that it usually involved chopping down forests. 
sure, this causes erosion, but there's a bigger issue with drought. According to David Ellison, a professor of the Swedish University, Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences. Forests are only second to the oceans and the amount of rainfall they cause. His studies have found that evapotranspiration, or the tr evaporation of water from vegetation, is a very large component of rain generation, on average about 50% in summer across the globe and 40% on an annual basis. He wrote, quote, we know that trees and forests are the most efficient evapotranspirators out there. If we compare them to, say, agricultural land cover, trees can evapotranspirate twice as much as agricultural crops and about twice as much as water body surfaces, unquote. Quote, he goes on, quote, So removing forests will have the biggest impact on cross-continental transport of water vapor, unquote. So during a period of time when the climate was already getting drier, the Romans were making their situation worse by clear-cutting the forests they needed to produce the rain that could water their crops. Often these forests came from slopes, hills, mountains, which were already prone to erosion. So they were kind of destroying themselves through two methods with uh, every time they cleared a hill. During the Roman transition period, and even more during the late antique Little Ice Age, the Nile floods would become unreliable, which meant that the Egyptian grain surplus was often inadequate to supply the needs of the rest of the empire. These lands were no longer getting enough rain to grow much, and were often so thoroughly stripped of soil that even if they had, it would have made much difference. Instead of building soil fertility, they'd shaved it to a razor-thin margin, unable to support them, just when they needed it the most. It was just another example of the Roman Empire losing that buffer that had insulated them from the shocks of their early years. So that just about wraps up my first series, Kingdom of Iron and Rust. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week will be the Q&A episode, which will wrap things up completely. If you'd like to contribute a question for the Q&A or comment on what you thought about this series, you can send me an email at andrewperlot at gmail.com. That's P-E-R-L-O-T. I'd particularly like feedback on my choice to make a slightly longer episode uh, for episode 12. Would you prefer fewer longer episodes or more shorter ones? Also, if you're enjoying this series, can you do me two favors? First, give this podcast a five-star review and write a few words about why you like it on iTunes or whatever podcasting app you use. Second, please consider supporting the podcast financially. In return, in return you'll get access to special bonus episodes like the ninth episode of this series, as well as other goodies. To do that, please go to patreon.com slash theturningwheel. Thanks, and see you next time.